Good morning, Life Points. Great to see you today. Great to be together. And I want to welcome all of you who are here in person and also those uh, joining us on our live stream and then later in the week sometime on YouTube. Uh, great to be together during this Christmas season and uh, really excited when you came in if you're in person. Uh, you may have noticed over the last couple weeks uh, all the presents and different things in the lobby. I just want to thank you. Uh, take a minute to thank you for uh, your generosity. Uh, we raised a lot of uh, goods. We pulled a lot of things together for Paxton Ministry in Harrisburg. It's a, a home for 85 residents, uh, many of whom don't have a lot. And during this Christmas season, you really stepped up with all kinds of things from toiletries to snacks, et cetera, et cetera. You can see all those things out there on, in the lobby. And we've got buckets and buckets of stuff. Thank you so much. You're making uh, a real difference in their lives this Christmas season. And also, uh, you can't see them now, but if you've seen over the last couple of weeks, all the presents, we had so many presents lined up in the lobby, like they were all like stretched out, like for half the lobby for uh, the children of prisoners. It's part of the Angel Tree Ministry. Many of you bought uh, presents for uh, the son or the daughter of somebody incarcerated, somebody in prison. You, uh, you really stepped up again. Thank you so much for that. And uh, I just want to take a minute to thank you for your generosity. Let's just give a hand to those around us. Thank you for what you're doing. Uh, during this Christmas season, making somebody's life a lot better. And uh, it's an awesome thing that we get to do this time of year. And I hope we can do even more, expand uh, the opportunities and the impact we can make all year round to, to serve others and, and to make lives better around us. Um, we're going to jump into our series today, which is Mixed Emojis. It's the Christmas expansion pack. But before we do that, I just want to remind you that today is In Gathering Sunday. And we've been uh, talking about this now for a few weeks. It's our end of year offering. It follows along with uh, the Old Testament festival and feast of In Gathering, where Israel in the Old Testament brought some of what God had blessed them with that year. Uh, to the Lord as an end-of-year, one-time gift. And so we're following that pattern as well. And, and there's a twofold purpose to our in-gathering offering. One is it's an opportunity for us to look back over the, the span of last year and just express our gratitude to God for his provision, to kind of look at this and say, God, thank you that there's food on my table. Thank you that you've blessed me. You've taken care of me. You've brought me out of the ashes of COVID. I thank you that I have a job, that this is working. And uh, just, it's, again, an expression of gratitude to God for his past provision. But additionally, it's also an opportunity for us to express trust in God's future provision. To say, God, just as you've taken care of me last year, I'm, I'm trusting in you. I'm giving this to you as an expression of my faith that, that you'll continue to bless and show your uh, favor on me as we move into the new year. And so I just uh, want to encourage you to be part of that. Uh, last night I was, uh, was watching TV and I'm thinking I haven't, I haven't done it yet. I was going to take care of it this morning. I was watching a Tyson Fury fight, if you like boxing. I'm, don't know why you needed that detail, but, uh, but anyway, there's a little pugilism going on. Uh, but anyway, I, was, uh, I don't know why you needed that detail either, but anyway. So I was on my app, and I was checking it out, and uh, Denise doesn't know this. We did agree on this already, so we're good to go, but uh, I 
basically gave our end gathering offering through the app. So there's different ways that you can do it. So thank you for that. And, and there's one thing, if there's one theme we see in scripture that is powerful and amazing, and it's this, that you can never outgive God. That there's this real sense that when we give God promises to bless us. He says to us over and over again through scripture, and he, he details this, how that if we give generously, we will reap generously. If we sow generously, we will reap generously. This idea that somehow God works things out in a way to, to care, take care of us in this life, and it sows seeds that somehow come to fruition even in the future. He says, give and it will be given back to you. You know, good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over. And, and I don't understand all that. I, I can't make sense of all that, but I, this is what it says, that somehow God blesses us when we put him first in our finances, when we sacrifice what we could keep for ourselves for something bigger than ourselves, for God's work in this world, he not only takes care of us now, but we sow seeds of blessing that follow us into the future. And that's an amazing promise that I wanna claim, I want you to claim, because God is in the business of doing something amazing, and that is pouring out blessing and favor on his people. And that's what I wanna talk about today, God's favor. You know, it's interesting, uh, when we look at all the different emojis, uh, today, the emoji is the wrapped present. And I think back to when I was a kid and I would sneak downstairs to look at the Christmas tree to see all the presents under the tree. And so, you know, maybe you've, got, you've seen that too. It's like, uh, this is the perfect idyllic one. Ours didn't quite look like that, but we had a tree and we had some presents. And, and as a kid, you're excited. I used to come downstairs super early. My mom told me not to, but I did anyway. And um, not recommended kids, don't do it, but I did. And so we came downstairs, and you know how you look at the presents and you're like, I wonder what it is. So you pick it up and you try to judge the weight of it. Like you're like, well, how much does this weigh? And I used to try to pull back the corners a little bit, like just a little bit so I could get a peek inside and I would cover it back up because I didn't want mom and dad to know that I already kind of took a look at things. Sometimes as adults, we lose that sense of wonder. We're like, yeah, it's just a bunch of presents under the tree. But then God gives us a gift of like uh, nieces or nephews or kids or grandkids and we see it anew through the wonder and excitement of their eyes. There's something about a wrapped present, and, and we wonder what's in it, but sometimes we already know who gave it to us based on the wrapping. I mean, have you noticed that, that some people are better at wrapping presents than, than other people? And I have a confession to make. I'm, I'm a bad wrapper. I'm not good at it. I try. I try, but I'm not good at it. In fact, you've probably seen packages that get wrapped. This is not mine, um, in case you're wondering. Uh, I'm a little better than that, but marginally, marginally better. But uh, so years ago, I used to wrap presents, and, and the kids would say, uh, okay, I know that one. That one's from Dad. They already knew it was, from, it was from me. So I solved that problem over the years, and I asked Denise if she could wrap the presents, which she does now because she's really good at it. And now, even this year, I just asked Kaylee yesterday if she would wrap some presents for me. So thank you, Kaylee. You're a champ. Really appreciate it. She came through in the clutch because she wraps really well too. 
but it's my daughter-in-law who takes wrapping to a whole other level because she does like uh, ribbons and bows and, she, and, and when she gives me a gift, honestly, I don't want to open it. I feel, I feel bad. It's like a work of art. So I'm like, how do I open this? Like, I don't want to damage it. it it's so beautiful. But presents are, are powerful because they convey someone's favor. They convey favor. It's like you love someone, you care about someone, so what do you want to do? You want to give them something to bless them. You want something uh, good to happen to them. We want to bring them joy. We want to make their life, and maybe just their day, just a little bit better. They convey favor. And it's a perfect image for us because this is exactly what God wants to do in our own lives, that he comes with presence in his hand to also convey favor to you and to me. This is his plan, this is his purpose, that he wants to bless us in powerful, profound, and lasting ways. And as we think about the birth narrative, the story of Jesus coming to this planet, if there's one thing that is a core truth that we need to unpack, it's this idea of favor. Because the idea of God's blessing and his desire to, to pour good things into our lives, the idea of God's goodness that he wants to express to you and to me, is not a peripheral part of this story. It's actually core to what God is doing here. It's the key explanation to what God wants to accomplish. And I want to look at a couple passages uh, today to lay this out. The first is in Luke chapter 1, 26 through 30. It says, in the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And the angel went to her and said, greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. Two times, right off the bat, the angel Gabriel makes it clear that Mary, God is, has favor in mind for you. He's blessing in mind for you. Two times the angel comes to him and comes to her and says, you're going to be a unique person in all of history to bring a unique and extraordinary child into this world, that you will give birth to Jesus, the Son of God, the Savior. He will be messianic. He will be a king. He will be a ruler. And it's just like mind-blowing what God is about to do. And just as that was predicted, it came to pass nine months later. It says this in Luke 2, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby that the angel had predicted nine months earlier uh, would be born. And she gave birth 
to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And so the angel makes a prediction, says, Mary, you are highly favored. The prediction comes through, true that this child is born miraculously. But what's said next really takes the whole thing to another level, explains the whole purpose for this unique and extraordinary birth. We read of this in verse 13 and 14. It says, suddenly, in light of this birth, in light of this, this new moment where God reveals himself to this world, suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests. Peace, favor. Why was Mary highly favored? She was highly favored because she would be the vessel, the conduit God would use to bring his favor to all humanity, to every single person who's ever lived. She would be the vessel God would use to, to bring a child into this world that would bless your life and my life, change the trajectory of our future, give us eternal life. And it's fascinating to think that, that this story begins to unpack why God came to the planet in the first place. Why 2,000 years ago, this birth is something that we remember to this day. There's all kinds of people who lived and died, and they're kind of in the dustbin of history. We really don't know much about them. We're super ahistorical today. We don't know a lot about history and what's going on. But somehow, we remember this child, Jesus, and it's all about what God came to bring us. He came to this planet to bring us favor, to pour out peace. He wants you to have peace in your life. He wants you to have peace in your marriage and in your home. He wants our world to live in peace, and he wants his blessings to overflow in our lives and in our world. And it really speaks here, I think, of that God came, and, and sometimes we have these ideas of God that are distorted. We get them from the wrong sources. We have this idea that, well, maybe God came to this planet to reprimand me because I'm a serious screw-up. Maybe God came to this, this planet to put me in my place because, well, religion tells me that there's all these boxes that I got to check, and I got all kinds of boxes I didn't check, and hoops I haven't jumped through, and so maybe God's come down to, to put me in my place, to reprimand me, to point out my faults and my foibles and my failures, and, and that's what he's done, and we hear right off the bat here that that's not the case at all, that Jesus came to pour out favor. It speaks of his love for you and me, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that God showed his love to us, that he came and gave his one and only son, that greater love has no man than this, that someone would give his life for his friend, that Jesus came to live and die, to be the savior of the world, to save us from selfishness and our sin, and it was all motivated by his love. It's the psalmist that, that thinks about God's love and faithfulness and says it's as vast as the sky. It's as awesome as the, as the ocean itself. And it speaks of the amazing thoughts that God has when he thinks of you. 
It, it speaks of the amazing love he has for all people. It means that we no longer have to guess, like, what does God think of me? We no longer have to wonder if God cares about my life. We no longer have to have this idea that, wow, I, I wonder what God is like if he even sees. We can doubt and worry and get confused about spiritual things. And then we read this story and see that God loves us so much. He came down and wrapped himself in the flesh of a child to reveal his goodness, his grace, and his favor. It's a powerful concept that God's love would do that for me with my screw-ups and my failures and for you because we all are in the same boat. But God says, you're worth it. I came to the planet to show you what favor and love looks like. And all of that is awesome. But that also raises big-time questions because the truth is sometimes we hear of God's favor and we read of God's favor and we want God's favor and we seek after God's favor, but the truth is that sometimes because of the, the circumstances in our life and the difficulties that we face, sometimes we don't feel that favor. We're just not feeling it. God can feel like he's a million miles away. We can feel like, God, I, I pray, but it's bouncing off the clouds and coming down. It's like a bronze sky. I'm not even sure you know what's going on. Do you know how hurt I am? Do you know the brokenness I'm dealing with? Do you know the inner struggles that are going on inside of me every day? And we can wonder, God, I love the idea of favor, but wow, I'm just not feeling it. It can happen to us when the world closes in on us when we take a body blow because circumstances are hard or when that thief breaks in in the middle of the night, that thief called worry and steals away our sleep. It's a struggle. It's difficult. It's painful. Mary had these exact same struggles. She was confused. Life didn't make sense. The angel says you're going to be favored and then, she, then it's like you're going to have a child and, and she hears all this and she sees all this and, and it says that she was greatly troubled. It speaks of being perplexed. It speaks of that moment of like serious confusion. Like how is this to be? And in that moment, she wasn't feeling God's favor. She was feeling fear. She was fearful of what she saw and heard. She was fearful of her future. So much so that the angel came and, you know, one of the second things he says right in the beginning of his conversation with her, he says, Mary, don't be afraid. Why? Because fear was a very real thing for her. But fear often begins to surface in certain ways in our lives. And for her and for us, it can surface in the form of a question. This anxiety and confusion can surface with a question that we, that we can pose to God even and just wonder what the answer might be. In verse 34, Mary listens to all this and she says, how can this be, this, this statement, this promise of favor, how can this be since I am 
a virgin. In other words, this is an impossibility. This favor you're talking about, I don't know how it could be mine. I can't bear a child. That is not going to happen, barring some kind of change in my circumstances. Sometimes we can be exactly the same way. Our fears can surface in the form of the same type of question. I've asked today for a volunteer, and so Bill is here. So Bill, why don't you come up here? Bill is playing an impossible role today. Bill is God. Okay. Sorry, Bill. I apologize for that. Uh, but Bill is God today, and in his hands are presents and God's favor. These are the things that God wants to pour into your life. But here's what happened. Mary's question is our question from some time to time because we kind of come to this moment and say, I love this idea of favor. I want to receive everything you have for me. I want to believe that I'm blessed. I want to believe that my future will be better than my past. But I'm struggling with that in the moment because when I look at it and I grasp for it and I go for it, there inevitably seems to be this block this wall that I bump up into. I'm bumping up into this wall and I'm, I'm wanting this, but I think the same thoughts. I say, God, how can this favor be? Because I am broken. I'm hurting. I'm damaged. How can this be, God? Because I'm single and I'm lonely and I can't even find a, the right guy or the right date, girl to date. How do I have a long-term relationship? I can't even find that person. Will I be lonely forever? How can this be, God, this favor? I want it in my life, but how can it be since I'm an addict and, and I struggle and I've abused a substance or I've abused a situation and I'm, I'm kind of in this moment where every day is a temptation to go back to the old life that I know will destroy me. How can this be? How can this be, God, this favor when I've lost a loved one? And it's like this new normal that I'm living is not what I would have chosen. It's not the life I want. It's a curveball that I don't know if I'll recover from. How can it be this favor? I've lost some money. I've made some bad mistakes. I, I've been through an ugly divorce, and I'm not sure I can recover from that. I just feel this sense I've made too many mistakes. I've derailed my own dreams. I've damaged my reputation. I've ruined my future. How can it be? Because I keep hitting this wall and I want it so much. But it eludes me. I feel like there's an impossibility here. A wall that blocks your blessing from my life. Mary had those moments of confusion too. How is this favor? How, does it, how can I achieve and, and realize what God has in store for me because there's this problem of being a virgin, but God has a way of working in our lives that we saw that Mary, in her moment of saying, I don't see how I can get past this obstacle, she trusted God. She turned to God. She remembered, we talked last week how she had a fantastic memory, 13-year-old girl who had a fantastic memory, remembering God's faithfulness in the past, and we looked at that. But there's even something at a deeper level going on in this story because there's gonna be this moment, and we're gonna unpack it, where suddenly we think there's an impossibility going on that I'm never gonna receive God's favor, and then suddenly, boom, it shows up. 
And it's like surprising. It's like, wow, I didn't, I didn't see that coming. I didn't know that you were working behind the scenes, these back channels to bless me. I didn't even think favor was something I'd, that would be mine. And then suddenly, it was. So let's give Bill a hand here. Thank you, Bill. Bill did this for two services. Let's give him another hand. Two services, Bill. Thank you, Bill. Really appreciate that. But here, we begin to look specifically at something that Mary probably didn't know at the time. And it had to do with the precise location of the birth, Bethlehem itself. Because there's something about Bethlehem that describes how God is going to work behind the scenes in your life to bring his favor and blessing to you. And we begin by going back in time to the life of Jacob, because that's where we start honing in on this location, this place called Bethlehem. And here we have a picture of how God is working through the life of this patriarch and how God redefines this locale, Bethlehem, in a very new and powerful way. Jacob was the youngest son of Isaac. Isaac was the son of Abraham. So they had a powerful lineage and heritage. Abraham was the father of the nation of Israel. He was the one God came to one day and say, said, you're going to be, uh, your descendants will be a great nation. They will be as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sand at the sea and at the beach. And you're like, wow, that's amazing. And, and so eventually Abraham, he had a son named Isaac. And Isaac married a woman named Rebekah. And one day they were pregnant Rebecca realized she had, she was with child, but not just one. There were two. She had twins going on inside her womb. And she was kind of getting bigger and bigger. And one day, something was going on inside her womb. And it says that these twins were jostling within her. In other words, you know how you're pregnant, and I mean, I don't know how, but you know how, but you know, you see the fist kind of coming across, and you're like, oh, look at that, the baby's moving, and it's like, oh, it's a fist, but in this case, it was way different, because there was a fist coming this way, and there was a fist coming this way, and it seemed like these twins were at it, like they were jostling within her. And Rebecca was a little scared about this, worried about this because of this tussle going on inside her womb. She actually inquired about it and wondered what was happening. And when these babies were born, we start to get another picture of how these children would struggle, how they would be at odds, and how their lives would be really challenging and difficult. Because when Rebecca finally gave birth, the firstborn was her son Esau. Esau, it says, was red and hairy. He was a guy who loved eventually, as he got older, to be in the outdoors. He's a guy who liked to like go shoot stuff, like go outside and the great outdoors and wide open spaces. And he loved to, to, to track down wild game. And his father loved him. His father, it says, even loved the way the guy smelled. 
Now, I don't know what a, somebody like an outdoors person, like if you're an outdoors person, like what you smell like, but evidently that was really good for Isaac. He loved the way his son smelled. He smelled like the dew of the earth, I guess, you know. Um, a guy in a tree stand. I, mean, I don't know. I didn't have tree stands. But he smelled like the outdoors, and he loved his son so much for that. And he was the firstborn, which meant he had all the privileges. Secondborn, man, that's not good. You don't want to be second. Firstborn, you get all the privileges. You get the birthright. You get all the blessings. You're the one who carries on the lineage and heritage of the father, Abraham, Isaac, and now you get to carry it on. That's Esau's role. So he's got it all going on. But Jacob, it's interesting, when he came out of the womb, he came out immediately after Esau, and it says that his arm was extended and he had grabbed onto the heel of Esau. It's a picture of how he would spend his life. He was a heel grabber. He was an ambitious man. He was always grasping for that which his older brother had. He wanted his birthright. He wanted his privileges. He wanted his inheritance. And he lived an ambitious life seeking after those things. And the word Jacob means heel grabber, but it also means in the Hebrew to cheat. In other words, I'm going to get what I need to get. And he was shrewd and he was tricky and he was conniving and he was going to get what he wanted to get. And it led to huge problems early in his life. This was a man who grew up and he was deceiving people. He deceived his father. He flat out lied to his father and disguised himself as Esau to get the blessing that Isaac would give to the firstborn. He actually put on certain clothes so he would smell like Esau because his dad loved the way he smelled. And he, he tricked his father, to, and he stole his blessing. And Esau learned of this, and Esau was furious. He was angry, and now he was determined. Esau was like, okay, I used to use my skills to track wild game, but now I'm going to use my skills to track down my brother, and he is a dead man. He's doomed. I'm going to kill him. And this sole story of, of family controversy and conflict just continued to follow him and unpack both of these brothers for many years. Finally, Jacob decides, I can't, I can't be around here, and he flees for his life. And he goes to his uncle's house, a man named Laban. And finally, he meets a man as tricky and conniving and as deceiving as he is. Because Jacob is starting to make a turnaround. He has a lot of self-inflicted wounds. He's made a lot of mistakes, but his heart is, is also orienting towards God. And he's kind of making a turnaround. He's kind of moving in a better direction, and God's going to work in his life and is working in his life. And, and part of this is what happens next. Because one day, he's with Laban, and he's on his property, and he notices this girl coming out to the well. It's a girl named Rachel. And it says that she was beautiful, like seriously, like this is a, this girl, I got to know her. She's one of those swipe right girls. Is that, is that what it is? Swipe, you swipe right? Yeah, she, you swipe right on, on her for sure. Cause this is the girl of my dreams. 
and I, I've got to have her. And, and so he falls in love. He falls in love with Rachel, and she becomes the best thing that's ever happened to him, part of his turnaround, part of this new chapter in his life. And he says, I want to marry her. And he goes to Laban and says, hey, listen, I want to marry her. What do you want? What is your bridal price? And, and Laban says, if you work for me seven years, I'll give you my daughter. And he's like, no problem. I'll do it. I mean, it was like short moment for him because his love was so great for this girl. And seven years later, on the night of his marriage, he got into bed and he turned and the woman laying next to him, it wasn't Rachel. It was Leah. Uh, his Rachel's older sister, and he's like, why did you give me Leah? It says Leah also had weak eyes, which means she didn't look as good as Rachel. And he wasn't into her. I don't know if that means that she had a great personality. I don't know what, what exactly that means, but, but she wasn't someone that he loved. And he's like furious about it. He goes to Laban, why did you give me Leah? I worked seven years for Rachel. And and he's like, well, we have a tradition. It's the oldest daughter that gets married first. So what do I need to do? Work seven more years. You can have her too. He goes, I'll do it. And then he marries Rachel. She's the love of his life. She, he's worked 14 years for this girl, and he's beyond satisfied and happy. His life is turning around. And then soon, Rachel gets pregnant. And then things took another bad turn. This was not now a self-inflicted injury. He had plenty of those. Now life was going to inflict a pain beyond anything he ever imagined. We start to read about this in Genesis 35, 16. It says, then they moved on from Bethel. And while they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel began to give birth and had great difficulty. And as, he was having, as she was having great difficulty in childbirth, the midwife said to her, don't be afraid for you have another son. And she breathed her last for she was dying. She named her son Ben-Onai, but his father named him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. Over her tomb, Jacob set up a pillar, and to this day, the pillar marks Rachel's tomb. This is the moment where Jacob's life completely collapsed. Here it is. He's trying to turn his life around. He's trying to do the right thing. He wants to honor God. He's trying to start a new chapter, and all of a sudden, a catastrophic thing happens, and he loses the love of his life, the woman that he worked for, the woman that he would die for. He loses her in childbirth. And Rachel knows she's dying. She knows that it's over. And as she breathes her last breath, she names her child Ben-Onai, which means son of my sorrow. Son of sorrow. She names him Ben-Onai as a perpetual reminder of her pain, of her adversity, of this horrible experience she's had as she leaves this world. And so Rachel tragically dies, and it says she was buried in Bethlehem. Bethlehem. It shows up. 
Bethlehem is that place where Jacob loses the love of his life, where Rachel dies, where Jacob sets up stones as a reminder of his horrible personal loss. It's in, Je in Bethlehem that there is now a marker of his loss and pain and suffering. And sometimes we are exactly the same way. We look at our lives and our past and we say, wow, I need to set down a marker too because I've been damaged, I've been broken, I've been hurt, I've suffered loss. We come to this moment where we kind of have a perpetual reminder of all the suffering we've incurred. We rehearse that pain. We refuse to let it go. In fact, we begin to define ourselves by our pain. We define ourselves by our loss. We define ourselves by our failure. We define ourselves by the mistakes we've made and the missteps we've had. We define ourselves. We label ourselves and say, you know, I'm a failure. I'm a drunk. I'll never amount to anything. I'm a loser. I'll never ever get out of this hole that I've dug for myself. We can come to these moments where we too say that because of this circumstance, because of this decision, because of what happened on this date at this time, I will never be the same. I will never recover. I will never rebound. We can say to ourselves that we are, in fact, Ben-Onai, that I will perpetually be a son of sorrow and suffering. I will always be, because of what happened to me, I will always be a daughter of, of suffering and sorrow and loss. And unwittingly, we can allow that pain to define us. We can take on a label that destroys us and robs us of peace and the future that God wants us to have. Because the truth is, God has a very different plan for your life and mine when we suffer, when things don't work out the way we had hoped, when we're broken, when we make our own mistakes. God wants to actually heal us and not, not so that we can just kind of live through life, live this moment as if there's this gaping wound in our spirit and soul and relationships that, that is going to define us that we'll never find wholeness again. God wants to bring out of our brokenness new purpose, new, a new plan, new hope, and deliverance from that pain. And I want us to think about this. When we read this story, what comes to mind when you think of Bethlehem? What, what comes to mind when you think of this idea of Bethlehem? For hundreds of years, it was all about this story. It was all about this is the place of Jacob's greatest suffering and pain. But is that what we think about today when we think of Bethlehem? No. We think of a star in the sky. We think of a manger. We think of a baby that's born. We think of a, a heavenly host singing. We sing a song, O Little Town of Bethlehem. What comes to our mind is very different today. Not loss, but what is gained. Not what was buried, but what was born. And this is exactly what God has in mind for us. That the place where Rachel died would not be a place of perpetual sorrow and brokenness but a new place that God would use 
for deliverance and new life. You see, God wants to shift us out of that past pain, the past pain that we've buried. He wants to give us new purpose that's about to be born. He wants to shift us out of that past pain so we can see the new purpose he has in mind for our lives and our future. And this means that God doesn't want us to walk through life always defining ourselves as Ben Onai. I am always going to be this son or daughter of suffering. Do you know Jacob came along and said, no, no, we're actually not going to, to perpetuate that. It's real, the sorrow is real, the pain is real. We're not gonna deny that, but my son won't be a constant reminder of the suffering, my personal loss. No, we're gonna move beyond that. I'm changing his name from Ben-Onai to Benjamin. No longer the son of my sorrow, but now the son of my right hand. Strength and power and blessing will come from this child because God is going to forge a new future that is awesome and amazing. I think what we see here is that God will transform our sorrows. He will transform our brokenness, our loss, our struggle, and bring us to a better place. And what God births in you will be surprising. In other words, you think I'm blocked. I'm blocked, I can't get this. But one day you're gonna be surprised. It's gonna be behind you and you're gonna be surprised by, wow, I didn't know if I'd get another job, but I got a, a better job. I didn't think this guy or girl would ever come into my life and suddenly it's there. I didn't think I'd be able to cope with my loneliness, but suddenly I can. I didn't know that I would be able to overcome this addiction, but God has given me new strength and new power. I didn't know that I could overcome this new normal of brokenness and loss, but God has given me peace that surpasses all understanding, and it's surprising. It comes out of nowhere. And so today, as you think about your own life, don't label yourself by what you've lost in the past. Don't, don't put a title on yourself as someone who's, man, I'm just perpetually broken. I'll never recover. I'll never rebound. I'm, I'm damaged goods. I'm done. No, no. God has something way better in store for you. And when you trust him and when you turn to him, he will break into your life in a way that is bigger than you would ever, ever imagine. Let him pour his favor into your life. Be patient as you wait for it. Because even if you're not feeling it, it's there. It's coming. Just wait. You see, if God can redefine Bethlehem from that place of Jacob's greatest sorrow as that place of Jacob's greatest pain and redefine Bethlehem into the place of God's greatest purpose, he can redefine your life too. He can set you on a better course for the future. No, you're not Ben-Onai. No, you're Benjamin. You are a son. You are a daughter. Love deeply. You stand at God's side receiving his favor. Let's pray.